sermon series called Being Church, and we are discussing the what's and the why's of what churches do. We're diving into the churchy church stuff, and we're trying to explain to people why it is that we have churchy church things that we do. We talked about church as family, we talked about church as kingdom, and now we're going to talk about, are you guys ready for this? It's going to be so good. Everybody's going to be excited. It's everybody's favorite topic. Accountability. Yes! Church and accountability. I'm going to talk about what it is, why we do it, and how we should do it. Accountability. This is a topic. I don't, you know what, you hear about it every now and then in the business world, but you don't hear about it too much anywhere else except church. In the church, we got and we gotta be accountable. We gotta be accountable to one another. We need accountability groups, we need an accountability prayer team, we need, we need accountability Facebook groups, we gotta have all this accountability. And it makes people feel like this. Alright? Um, this actually is, this actually is an accurate picture of what accountability looks like in action. Come on. Oh, it's not what you think, alright? But I'm gonna tell you, in this picture is a wonderful example of the function of accountability. We're going to get to that in just a second, but first let's break it down. What is accountability? I went to Merriam-Webster, I took a screenshot, shamelessly cut that sucker down, and threw it on the slideshow. Here we go. Definition of accountability. The quality, oh, by the way, for people on the recording, that was, previous slide was a cop pulling some video awkward, but you missed it because you weren't here. Can I say that? That's terrible. Okay. All right. Back to accountability. The quality or state of being accountable. Looks like we have to look up a different word. Especially an obligation or willingness to accept responsibility or to account for one's actions. And the example Marion Webster gives is a public official lacking accountability. Well, if it's the, the quality of being accountable, let's look up what accountable means. Here we go. Accountable. Subject to giving an account. Answerable. And the example is someone held accountable for the damage. Answerable. So here we have a willingness to be accountable. So there's a willingness to be answerable for your own actions. And to be accountable is simply to be answerable. So if somebody saying, hey, these were your actions, what do you have to say about that? Well, that doesn't sound half as threatening as the police officer picture. And that's because when most people talk about accountability, you would swear that what was actually being talked about was culpability, which is a totally different thing. Culpability means guilty, criminal, meriting condemnation or blame, especially as wrong or harmful. Culpable negligence. The defendant is culpable for her actions. For this message and for all time, I hope to separate tonight accountability from culpability, and being held accountable from being held culpable. Because not only are they not the same thing, but I think conflating the two has made us really resistant, and understandably so, to accountability. Because who wants a whole bunch of people? Who wants to enter a community? Hey, come to my church. We've got a great community. We all make sure everybody else is culpable. <laughs> Gross. I'm not signing up for that, and I don't think that's what Jesus tried to institute. He wanted a group of people who were accountable, though. And accountability, as we just discussed, is just a willingness to answer for, to talk about, explain why you are doing or why you did what you did. And when you hold someone accountable, you don't kick open the door, fire a warning shot in the air, and point the finger. 
right? You are asking them, hey, saw you did this, struck me wrong, let's talk about it. That's what accountability is. It's an answering for your own actions. Not culpability. Is that clear? We're all good? All right, good. That's the foundation. So let's go back to our picture. And here we have the cop. He's pulling over some somebody. When we see this picture, we immediately think, okay, accountability. That's the cop, man. He's holding that car accountable for breaking the law. And maybe he is. But you know what? It's a police officer's job to assess culpability. Should you pay a price? Do I need to arrest you? Will you get a ticket? That is not the picture of accountability in action in this photograph. Let's get rid of the clutter. Here's just a plain old road. Also in this picture is a wonderful example of what accountability in action looks like. It's these. It's the rumble strips. And it's these guys over here. It's the guardrail. Hopefully you don't get to the guardrail. There's some damage involved. Hopefully the rumble strip stops you. The rumble strip's job is to hold you accountable for your crappy driving. It speaks up and says, excuse me, sir, or ma'am, you are going off the road. Impending danger. Maybe you would like to correct course. And if you ignore the rumble strip, because how dare it tell you how to drive, the guardrail will probably get involved. And then so will your insurance company. So it's better to listen to accountability at the first stage. But God has instituted both. We're going to talk about accountability as a guardrail and a rumble strip tonight. Is that a lot better than a cop? Yeah. Amen. I think so too. Why do we have it? Why do we have accountability? Let's think about it for this whole message. Let's think about accountability as the rumble strip and the guardrail. Well, if you were to think about it like that, literally, why do you have a rumble strip and a guardrail? It might be obvious, but let's look at some scripture verses to talk about what happens, what the consequences might be if God were to remove the rumble strips, the little warnings that you are off course, the little, the little noises, the uncomfortable feeling that something is not right. And we're going to look at two passages, Psalms 10 and Romans 1. When there is no rumble strip, here is Psalms 10. Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked relentlessly pursue their victims. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked one boasts about his own cravings. The one who is greedy curses and despises the Lord. Okay, got to back up here. This psalm is written as a complaint against the wicked. I want to think about this psalm from the perspective of the wicked person. Because this guy is saying, God, why are you hiding? Why are you doing anything? You are not making your presence known at all. And here are these wicked people taking advantage of people. The psalm details all the horrible crap they're doing. And the psalmist is saying, what gives, man? Will you show up and do something? It's like you're not even here. What does the wicked person think? He thinks exactly the same thing. God has removed the rumble strips. He's doing wicked and not suffering any repercussions. He thinks God isn't there either. That should be horrifying. Let's look at the rest of the psalm. In all his scheming, the wicked person arrogantly thinks there is no accountability since there is no God. He's not hitting any rumble strips. He thinks he's doing just fine. His ways are always secure. Why does he think that? Because he's not getting any signs that they're not. Your lofty judgments have no effect on him. He scoffs at all his adversaries. He says to himself, I will never be moved from generation to generation without calamity. 
So this wicked person doing wicked hasn't seen the lightning bolt yet, hasn't hit a guardrail yet, hasn't heard or seen God do anything yet. So he says, you must not even be a God. I'm fine. Nobody's going to make me answer for this stuff. The psalm details the wickedness he's doing, and then at the end it says this. Why has the wicked person despised God? He says to himself, you will not demand an account. God won't demand an account. But here's the kicker. Psalm 10, verse 14. But you, God, yourself have seen trouble and grief, observing it, in order to take the matter into your own hands. There might not be a rumble strip for this wicked person. There might not be a guardrail. But there sure as heck is a cliff. And here it is. Break the arm of the wicked, evil person until you look for his wickedness, but it can't be found. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. And nations there is kind of a synonym for all evil people. We have to remember that anybody could come into Israel and obey the law and be just fine. It's talking about wicked people. This is the end. There's a judgment coming. There's a breaking coming. God is going to show up. There is, in fact, a cliff. He's removed the rumble strip, but he's going to take matters into his own hand. Does that sound scary? Yes. Would you like to be the wicked person who thinks everything's hunky-dory until this happens? No. I sure would not. And this same attitude of God is echoed in the New Testament. Romans 1. This is what Paul says. He's talking about all the wicked people in the world. In verse 21 he says, For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So Paul's looking out at the world, and he says, these people knew better, and they decided not to go with what they knew. They should have known. They knew enough. And yet, they decided to become foolish. They decided to darken their hearts. So God does something absolutely, your blood should run cold at the thought, if this really sinks in. God removes the rumble strips and he removes the guardrail. He doesn't send a lightning bolt. He removes the warnings. Listen to this. In verses 24, 26, and 28, it repeats the same refrain. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts. 26. For this reason, God delivered them over. Verse 28. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, what did God do? God delivered them over to a corrupt mindset. They do not do what is right. Judgment is still coming. Right and wrong did not go away. But these people have hardened their hearts. In another verse it says they've, they've seared their consciences. So God's like, you know, that's fine. You do your thing. But I'm taking this rumble strip and I'm taking this guardrail. And when you go 120 miles an hour down this road, with those removed, you have no one to blame but yourself. I told you. I told you. Is that awful? That sounds awful. That, that's an amazing picture, by the way. I don't know where in the world that road is, but I don't ever need to go there. That is for sure. That is a sure thing. We got that one little pine tree on the side. It's like the little pine tree that could. You know, wouldn't it be ironic if they had to trim it one day? That's be terrible. You could do it, little guy. No, but seriously, it's a horrifying thing if there's no rumble strips. So what is accountability? It's a willingness to answer for your actions. Holding someone accountable is asking them about their actions and letting them interact with you to explain themselves.
but it is a facing up of your own actions. What happens if there's no accountability? Tragedy. We have accountability to save our lives and to keep us on track because it matters. And the consequences are far greater than we might want to admit. Amen? Amen. Thank you, camera. Amen. Here we go. How do we do it? Last section. If it's being answerable, the state of accountability is being willing to answer for your own actions, willing, you're not resistant, and holding someone accountable is not being the judge and making sure they're culpable. It's just bringing up their actions and asking them about it. There's got to be a proper way to do it. And in fact, there is. And the Bible is just full of case studies about this. And we're going to look at a few today. How do we do it? Number one, we have the guy in the car. Got it? It's the guy, guy in the car. Oh, come on. I thought it was awesome. So I googled guy in a car. And I got a picture of literally a guy here in a car. And I'm like, that is beautiful. It's so good. All right. So we got the guy in the car, right? So this is the guy. He's going to be driving funny. He's, he's going off the road. Now, it's our job to be the rumble strip for this guy, okay? Because the way God has instituted accountability is the church. We're supposed to be rumble strips for each other, okay? So our relationships are supposed to be close enough that if somebody's going off the road, and it's sure like this in marriage, let me tell you what, somebody will step in and say, hey, Rumble, 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 rumble. Like, oh, oh, sorry. Of course, correct. So we're going to address Guy, and we're going we're gonna to be a rumble strip for him. Now, we have an outline of what our attitude should be in 1 Timothy 5. Amen. Paul is talking to Timothy, and this is in the context of how to rebuke and exhort. All right? So he says, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly. But exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Now this isn't just saying, hey, this is how you should act towards everybody in general. I think Paul is saying, because he's addressing how to exhort and how to rebuke, he's saying in the time when somebody needs to be held accountable, Tim, when you have to be somebody's rumble strip, and they don't know that they're going 120 and they're about to go around that curve and it's a cliff and you've got to rumble for somebody, this is how you do it. You don't be a jerk. Be respectful. Treat the older man as a father, the older woman as a mother. Those guys, they're not your subordinates. Those are your brothers. And the same with the girls. There always must be an honoring attitude of respect. Always. And so if it's easier to remember, you can think about it like this. Recognize and resist rude rumbling. <laughs> had to do it. I know, it's the second one that gets grown from Justin. I might, I might get held accountable later for my slideshow. But this is super important, guys. Look, has anybody ever been confronted poorly? Yeah. I have. Does it stink? Yeah. It stinks. Does it make you want to listen to what they have to say and get introspective and analyze your own behavior? Or does it make you want to snatch them bald-headed, yeah. as my yeah. mother is fond of saying? The second one. Yeah. So... If you want someone to receive what you're saying well, remember you're trying to save their life. You are trying to keep them from going off the road. They're crying out loud. Have a heart. Be nice. They haven't been mean yet. And this will help the person on the receiving end actually listen to you. Conversely, when somebody addresses something that you've done and they don't like it, please remember they're trying to save your life. It might seem like they're just getting in your business, but they're actually trying to help. So that has to be the attitude from both ends. This is how Jesus says to do it. Super simple. Let's get it right. 
Matthew 18, 15. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. What's the next line? Just between the two of you. Just between the two of you. And if they listen to you, you have won them over. Two points about this verse. Just between the two of you. It means not on Facebook. Don't gossip about it. Don't get any more wise counsel from your friends than you need. If they did something that bugs you and you think they messed up, you know it. And if they don't know it, go make sure they know it. Right? And that's all that needs to happen. Now, if they don't listen to you, we, we get into the, into the woods a little bit. But this message isn't about that. This is just how to have people be answerable for their actions. Go talk to them. In person. Don't wait. Be respectful. Be nice. Just the two of you. And look at the goal here. If they listen to you, you have won them over. In church and everywhere else, the goal of accountability is not to win. It's to win them over. It's not to prove to them that they were wrong and they messed up and you caught them. It's to restore the relationship so that both of you feel like you win. To win them over means they're grateful. Come on, man. That needs to be the attitude. But bear in mind when you do it. Your personal rumble strips may be in a different position than the person you're trying to hold accountable. This, I'm, I'm kind of stretching the metaphor a little bit. But we have areas of freedom in the Christian life, and, and we talked about this a little bit in the kingdom message, about how we need to have a kingdom mindset towards the issue, all right? But if we bring up alcohol, movies, tobacco, clothes, dancing, what TV shows you watch, what music you listen to, we can find friction pretty quick between every single person in this room. And sometimes your convictions and what is actually wrong and sinful for you is not what is sinful for Anthony Davis or Chris Paul or just you. Mm-hmm. And between their own master, they will stand or fall and he is able to make them stand. Which means we need to have humility when we hold someone accountable because the possibility exists that you are actually the one who's wrong. <laughs> the possibility exists that you are rumbling for no reason. Do we have an example of this in the Bible? Yes, we do. <laughs> Check this out. So we got this guy. You might have heard of him. His name's Paul. He did some things. He's pretty famous. He's a big deal. So he's going around. He's kind of doing this thing called turning the whole world upside down, right? He's kicking out demons. He's performing miracles. He's getting stoned, getting back up, and going back into cities. He's like the Terminator of the New Testament for the kingdom, right? He's transforming the Gentile world. He goes back home to Antioch, his home church, and this happens. Acts 15, 1-2. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute. Somebody say sharp dispute. Sharp dispute. That means they were not having fun and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. They're in trouble. They've been out gallivanting around the world, and they come home, and they say, guys, it's gone great. And then they've got some really devout believers, guys. These are believers who show up, and they teach not, I don't think they're trying to be mean. They're just trying to teach what they think is the right thing to do. Like, hey, yeah, that's great. They're safe, but we've got to teach them how to be Jews. And Paul and Barnabas have a huge problem with that. So it's Paul and Barnabas, and the few people that agree with them, against a lot of people, man. 
This isn't just one guy that wants to hold Paul accountable. This is a group. And then when they get to Jerusalem, it gets worse. Acts 15.5, when they finally get to Jerusalem, some of the believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. This is a big deal. They went to Jerusalem to be accountable, not culpable. They're going to give an answer for their actions to explain themselves, and a decision is going to be made. There is a large posse of people who don't like what they're doing. Surprise for them. They're wrong. When they finally hash it out, the people who did the rumbling have to be quiet. Listen to what Peter says. God showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No! Exclamation point. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. How would you like to be the guy that makes a road trip just to convince the Jerusalem church that this guy's crazy, only to find out that you have to help deliver the letter back to the church that says, we messed up. Sorry, our rumble strips were in the wrong place. Love you. Love grace. We'll take some grace, please. See why humility is important? we got to do this right, guys, because we're still flawed, and our rumble strips might be wrong. All right. So that's how you deal with the guy in the car. But what if there are a few examples in the Bible, I'm not going to spend too much time on this, but what if there's not just one guy in the car? What if, so to speak, we have a whole bunch of people on the car? What if it's an issue where a leader, someone who's influential in the community, is messing up? What do we do then? Now, there are scriptures on this, and I didn't really want to want to mess with it, but I think I have to, because some of the things Paul says, they're pretty intense, man, so I want to address why. This chick is the driver. So she's the one that we need to hold accountable. But there are other people in the vehicle, so we need to address it differently. 1 Timothy 5.17, right after Paul tells Timothy, hey, this is how I need you to exhort and rebuke individuals, he says this about leaders. He says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. Pause. Do you think they're worthy of double honor privately, or do you think they're being honored publicly? Probably publicly. They're probably being honored in the group of people because they're directing the affairs of the church. They are helping to drive the car. Does that make sense? All right, so they're being honored publicly. But those elders who are sinning, this is 1 Timothy 5.20, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. Harsh. Whoa, we don't like that, do we? Let's sing another song about how God loves us and there's grace and there's mercy. I think if we look into this, and I believe another translation, I should have pulled it up and kicking myself right now, I might do it tomorrow. I think another one translates that verb persist in sinning, as if it's an ongoing action, that they've already been talked to once or twice. But dude, they're directing the affairs of the church and being honored publicly. If they're sinning publicly, Paul is telling Timothy, look, you've got to rebuke them, you've got to warn them, you've got to have them be answerable for their actions in front of the group so that people can be warned. There's a case study about this in the Bible too. And when we look at that, I think it'll make this seem less scary, still very serious, but less scary. Let's check it out. You guys doing okay? Yep. Got a lot tonight. Excellent. 
Why? Why hold him accountable in public? Here we go. Because that guy's crazy. And we cannot put the whole church in his car. That's why. Because if he's in charge of the car, bad things are going to happen. You got somebody who's persisting in sin. You got a bunch of innocent people in the back seat. This needs to be dealt with, and it's no joke. So let's look at it in the scripture. Galatians 2, 11 and 12. We have a lot of scriptures tonight. So it's, it's recorded, so feel free to listen to it again. But this again involves Paul, who has this nasty habit of being absolutely correct. People still want to argue with him. It's amazing. In Galatians 2, he talks about another encounter he had with Peter. He calls him by his name Cephas. He says, when Cephas came to Antioch, I, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. He was doing something blatantly wrong, and he knew it. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. What in the world did that just say if you haven't grown up in church? Okay, here we go. I'll back up. So, Paul's got this radical new message, right? That God wants everybody to be saved. The gospel is open to the whole world. And he's doing what we already talked about. He's preaching Jesus, man. He's saying Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is the way you get in. It's not the law. You don't have to adhere to anything else, you know? So, we got Peter, who knows this full well. Remember, he was the guy that said, hey, yeah, Paul's right. Well, here we got Peter acting like a fool. He's doing something that he knows is wrong. He goes to the Antioch church. And we've got Jews and Gentiles eating together in harmony. It's amazing. They have a unified body. And yet these guys come down from, from the church leadership. And they are still all about the law. They still believe, apparently, that everybody can be saved, but then you have to full-on, absolutely adhere to everything in the Mosaic Law. Now, at this point, we don't know if that council had already happened or not, but we know Peter is on board with Gentiles being saved. And you can read and find out about that now. So Paul's looking, and he sees this unified body get ripped apart. Because Peter, who doesn't even do Jewish stuff anymore, starts separating from the Gentiles as if he needs to remain pure from them and only eating with Jews. Dude, this is bad news, guys. Not only that, Galatians 2.13, the other Jews joined him. Why? Because he's the leader. Peter's driving the car. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy. So by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas, Paul's buddy, the same Barnabas that went to Jerusalem to fight for the Gentiles and not happen to obey the law, even Barnabas was led astray. Do you guys realize what's happening to the whole church? This is what's happening to the whole church. No rumble strip, no guardrail, right off the cliff. The whole community is going to be torn apart. This, it sounds so little to us now, like, who cares who they eat with? No, guys, this is a big deal. The heart of the gospel is that it's for everybody, and it's only under Jesus Christ. And apparently the only person with a backbone stiff enough to deal with this was Paul. So Paul kicks open the door, fires a morning shot, and points, no, he actually doesn't. He actually doesn't. Listen to this. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You're a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's not cussing them out. You know, this is not a megachurch. There's not 3,000 people there. I assume, and I can't prove this, that he meandered over to the table, but everybody could hear him because it was probably a small room, and he just asked them in front of everybody, Hey, man, 
uh, you were the guy that God sent to Cornelius' house, right? To like demonstrate that the Gentiles were in. And you argued after that immediately, right? That God gave them the Holy Spirit and they didn't need anything else. Dude, what are you doing? What are you doing? Accountability, not culpability. Now that is not the same as dragging somebody in front of the church and shaming them on purpose. That's just asking him to answer for his actions. It's respectful. It had to be done for the sake of the group. And thank God Paul did that. Now, dude, Peter had gotten past the rumble strips, and he was solidly in guardrail territory, so there was definitely an insurance claim. <laughs> I'm so happy with these slides. But, look, because Paul had the guts to do that, because he did it right, we have no evidence in the Bible that there was ever a schism between Peter and Paul. None. In fact, we have Peter recording... And, and think it's second Peter to tell people, hey, make sure you read Paul carefully and get everything he has to say, because sometimes it's hard to understand. He's got really good stuff. We have every indication that Peter was like, oh, crap. You know, I used to hang out with this guy for three years that did this kind of stuff to me all the time. I, I know how to deal with this. <laughs> you know, you're right, I'm wrong. Humility. We need to act like this for each other. That man get that gif off of there. It's just too much. We have to be rumble strips. We have to do it respectfully. If the rumble strip fails, have the guts to be a guardrail for someone. Alright? This is what accountability is. It's for our own good. Accountability is being responsible for your own actions and willing to answer for them. Can we all do that? I, you know what? I won't call anybody out, but this happened today, before service. We had something that's like, hey, you're doing this and I don't like it. And we had to kind of have a conversation. We're like, oh, this is what I'm doing. I'm not. Is that okay? We came to an understanding and it took a while. And I thought it was amusing at the time because it was literally my sermon in action. And everybody was, everybody, Jimmy, it's funny, you're laughing a lot. This is weird. Okay, sorry. But, you know, it's interesting when, you, when it's working, you can see it work and people are discussing it respectfully. It's, it's amazing. It's great. It's beautiful. Second, healthy accountability is almost always respectful, personal, and private respectful, personal, not over the phone if you can, not via Facebook message if you can, in person, in private. Alright? Unless somebody is persisting in sin, they're massively influential and they're hurting the church. And in a situation like that, well, if Peter's doing something nasty, the Paul should probably show up and deal with it. So, we should probably trust our leadership on that. But, if something like that is crazy, shows up, follow the Lord's leading. Three, Accountability is a lifesaver, and we should all want it. I'll just point something out, though, as I close. I'll head into the very last two slides. It's amazing to me that even after this sermon, even after these examples and laughing, none of us want it. You don't have to raise your hand. Nobody's probably, well, maybe you are, but I don't think anybody's jumping up and down saying, oh, me, pick me, I can't wait to be held accountable. I hope someone holds me accountable tonight. You know? It just doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> It's, it's never fun. I mean, okay, so I used a Pokemon in a sermon a couple weeks ago. And uh, somebody came up to me with, a, like, this big, long essay about how Pokemon were demonic. And they were like, I was really bothered by what you said because I think this is true. And I'm like, I don't, I don't believe that's true. You know, but they were respectful and gracious to me. And I showed being respectful and gracious to them by actually reading the article, by thinking about it. By listening to them and taking them seriously, you're not throwing it in the garbage. You know, people are going to help hold you accountable. 
but it's not fun ever. For some reason, even something like that wasn't fun. So you're probably thinking, sounds unpleasant. Isn't there a way I can stay on track and not go off the road without somebody else getting involved? Kind of. All right, there's no substitute for accountability, but I'll give you two cheats. You guys want two cheats? These will probably help. One, there's this book you can read. Right? Yeah, it's called the Bible. And if you read that thing, it will rumble for you. All right? You will be rumbled at, and you will have to correct course. And, but just in case, you are one of the gifted 100% of humanity who don't like to be rumbled at, and so skip the parts that would rumble at you. You can go to this place where people are trained to read the Bible and rumble for you. It's called church, and that's a picture of New Day Community Church. So one way or another, that community of faith is necessary for accountability, which I hope after this is not nearly as horrifying or distasteful as it was before. Amen. Thank you, guys. Here's Shane.